Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And I write about consumer tech stuff over at techuplife.com. And if you haven't already done so, follow us, the Celluloid Fiends, on Facebook and Twitter at Celluloid Fiends and at Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And head over to the iTunes store and leave us a rating and a review, as well as subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, because it helps us out quite a bit. And tonight, I am joined by... They're coming to get you, Barbara. Hey, Celluloid Fiends, it's Wes Clifton. Uh, I'm a writer, I'm a musician, and I am a multiplex maniac. Uh, You can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Cliff Weston. And if you would like to check out some of my fiction writing, you can do so at my website, wdclifton.wordpress.com. And we are here in the studio for another spooktacular Celluloid Fiends podcast episode. So what all have you been watching lately and did you pick up any physical media? So I'm about to, now that we've got out of the way that it's October and we're going to talk about spooky stuff, I'm about to tell you that I've watched almost no horror movies except for our subject this week. I, um, I got on a real Bruce Lee kick and I watched Bruce Lee's, basically his entire filmography over the past couple weeks. Uh, the Big Boss, Fist of Fury, The Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon, and Game of Death. Um, because I had only seen, actually, um, Enter the Dragon and Game of Death before. So I needed to go back and watch all the others. And I just I just really enjoyed them all. Are you a Bruce Lee guy? Oh, yeah. I love Bruce Lee, although I haven't seen a ton of his stuff, just kind of more of the classics. Yeah. And I mean, you know, sadly, he died at age 32, so he only made five. Um, And apparently Criterion just released like a big old box set that looks really nice. So I'm thinking that when Christmas rolls around, I may put that on my list for Santa Claus um, because it looks really great. And then the other movie, I mean, obviously that kept me pretty busy, but I did go back and revisit one of my absolute favorite movies from the past decade or so which was creed uh that movie is so good i've always been a big fan of the rocky franchise and just man creed knocked it out of the park uh you've seen that i assume no i have not oh dude i i've heard so many excellent things about it but for some reason i just haven't gotten around to watching it it just really knocked it out of the park and like rewatching it again the other day, which I've watched it several times, but uh, I just kept thinking what a bummer it is that it came out in 2015. So it's going to be a while before we can talk about it on the show, but it, uh, it's just such a good movie. Uh, and Michael B. Jordan's great in it. Stallone is great in it. Um, it just does the thing that I, that I really love, which is it takes characters that I grew up watching 
and makes them relevant. And it's not just like a rehash of, of prior stuff. It, it, it it's, makes it relevant and, and it keeps it uh, current in a lot of ways, but still calls back very respectively um, to the rest of the Rocky franchise. It's just really good. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, and in terms of pickups, I picked up the I picked up a couple Scott Adkins movies. I know on the last episode I mentioned that I had just watched his film Ninja, which I really loved, and so then I ended up watching the sequel Ninja: Shadow of a Tear, and I picked those up on Blu-ray and a two-pack. And I also picked up uh, his um, his sequel to the Van Damme classic Hard Target, uh, Hard Target Two, with Scott Adkins, which uh, is also something I, I really enjoy. And I picked up a CD copy of one of my all-time favorite movie scores, James Horner's score for the Schwarzenegger classic Commando. Excellent film and a seriously good soundtrack. So good, so good. It, anything Horner touched was just musical gold. Yeah, and we got to see uh, we got to see Commando on the big screen earlier this year. Oh yeah, yeah. That was an excellent screening. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there were there were some parts that I had totally forgotten about, kind of like the montage at the beginning where Arnold is is feeding furry woodland creatures. Yeah, out of the palm of his hand, and then when he strips down to a speedo to row a boat to yeah. shore, you have to. You don't <laughs> want to get your pants wet, bro. <laughs> exactly. You know, you got to stay dry. Yeah, for sure. So, what have you been up to, man? So I, uh, it's okay that you've been kind of focusing more on, on some action films because I have really been going in on the, on the horror stuff for October. Nice. So in addition to what we are reviewing tonight, I watched scary stories to tell in the dark. Oh, did you like that? Yeah, I actually loved that. Okay. I think I think part of that was probably the nostalgia factor because those were some books that I read growing up. Yeah. And I credit that in part for kind of my love of horror as an adult, kind of being exposed to that and goosebumps and some other things as a kid. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought it was an uh, just an incredible adaptation with really good creature design. And it kind of touched upon some of the more well-known stories as well as some of the more fringe stories from that series. So I, I think it's totally worth watching the Herald, uh, the Herald scarecrow seeing that like come to life. It just brought back one of my old childhood nightmares. Yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah. And even the sound design during yeah. that part is is pretty powerful, kind of with the uh, you know with the straw hitting you from all angles. Yeah. So I watched that. I've been watching the Chilling Tales of Sabrina on Netflix. Oh, cool! Because I read the graphic novel of that earlier this year, and I really loved it. And I'd been wanting to kind of check out the series, so I've been I've been watching that. Uh, and then I also wa- have been watching some of the Hammer Frankenstein films. Nice. Yeah, I just I love those. And and we were we were talking about that earlier. You had, you uh, commented quite uh, correctly that you know the Curse of Frankenstein is just incredible gothic horror. Oh yeah, for sure. So good. Just super well done. Uh, in terms of pickups, I haven't picked up a lot recently. These were these were a few weeks back, but I did pick up Ad Astra on Blu-ray. Oh, I thought it was a, a pretty solid sci-fi film. Yeah, and then I, I did pick up. I mentioned watching Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and that I, I watched recently because I picked it up on Blu-ray. Nice, nice. Yeah. 
And now, our feature presentation. And tonight we are talking about the 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead. This film is directed by George A. Romero and written by Romero as well as John Russo. It came out quite appropriately on October 1st of 1968 and had a modest budget of $114,000 and made over $30 million at the box office. It has a 97% critic rating and an 87% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, that means 13% of the people are wrong. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and 3% of critics are wrong. Can you imagine watching this movie and being like, nah, it's not for me. <laughs> I mean, like, how weird. Yeah, I, I, it baffles me that uh, that anyone would would you know downvote this film i just can't, i can't believe it like i just can't believe that yeah uh i'm i'm almost shocked i mean 97 percent and 87 percent are both pretty high but i'm shocked that it doesn't have a you know just a straight 100 across the board yeah it's it's same dude it's the same way i felt when i saw that jaws didn't have a straight 100 across the board i'm just like what is wrong with people but oh well at least 87 percent that's pretty good and 97 percent most people understand we can we can round that up to one hundred and and uh, and ninety respectively. That is that is now my head cannon. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. So Wes, tell us what is this film about? Suddenly, they were surrounded by the living dead, and the groaning horde of flesh-eating ghouls made the night the longest and most terrifying in movie history. It began quietly, serenely with a brother and sister's visit to their family cemetery. The first attack came without warning, forcing Barbara to leave her brother lying bloodied and unconscious while she ran for refuge in a farmhouse nearby. Soon there were seven desperate souls huddled against the gathering darkness, seven people with nothing in common but their terror of the hideous cannibals who clawed unceasingly at their windows and doors. Throughout the night, the ravenous dead rose from their graves with an insatiable appetite for living human flesh. They pounded the doors and battered the walls, their force increasing by the sheer weight of their numbers. That is the plot description from the back of my VHS copy of Night of the Living Dead. And that is a gorgeous description of this film. It really is. Yeah, I, I sometimes I think the back of the box can kind of be a little bit of a letdown, but yeah. in this case, I I thought it really encapsulated the film quite well, especially for a uh, for a classic movie. A lot of times you read the back of a because this this is not like you know this is one that came out like a special collector's edition, and a lot of times for those um, they'll be like the back won't even tell the plot; it'll just be like this movie's a great classic, and blah. I'm like, okay, but what about the plot? Give me a sweet description. <laughs> Yeah, and that that one did not uh, did not let me down. You can always count on Anchor Bay. Oh, that was an Anchor Bay VHS. Anchor Bay VHS, yes, it is. 
Okay, well, you know, you should have led with that. Yeah, yeah. that explains why. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, anything Anchor Bay put out, always, always on point. Yeah. Uh, and same with, like, you know, Shout Factory and Scream Factory. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so this was a West pick. Yeah. And what made you pick this film? Well, I mean, you know, I feel like we got to stop choosing such great movies because I hate to say once again that this is one of my all time favorite movies, but it it just simply <laughs> it just simply is that. Um, uh, uh, earlier this year, actually, uh, back in June, the retro film series when theaters were not allowed to open yet, um, they were hosting their uh, their weekly film screenings online and uh, uh, through Facebook, and so they asked me to co host a screening of Night of the Living Dead, which I jumped on because, like I said, I really love this movie. So I did a lot of research back in June about Night of the Living Dead and compiled all this trivia and stuff. And and at that time, I decided, well, I've, I've got all these notes about it. Uh, I'm going to, come October time, I'm going to choose Night of the Living Dead as my movie. So I've actually had this uh, on tap since June, wanting to do it in, in October. Uh, but it is one of my favorite um, horror movies of all time. It's just really great. Uh, and I, I just think it's a real classic that everybody should see. Uh, I 100% agree with that. I do think it is a classic that everyone should see. And even though it is a horror film and does have some pretty intense violence in it, uh, I don't think it's actually that, as weird as this might sound, I don't think it's actually that scary in terms of kind of the uh, moments where there's gore or something and you have to look away. I think it's more... Just very bleak. I think that is true for a modern perspective, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later on. I mean, you know, it, we have a very different view of what is horrifying due to our culture's entertainment. I mean, you know, uh, in a country where even people who don't like horror movies watch The Walking Dead all the time. I mean, you know, what is shocking to us is not what was shocking to people in 68. So, yeah, I think that people now even if you don't typically like horror movies, could watch this movie with no problem. Um, yeah. Oh, totally. Uh, that's a great point. In fact, I, uh, I I read some horror stories about when this came out yeah. in, in cinemas. Yes. Uh, but what was your first exposure to this film? Yeah, when I was like... So growing up, I actually wasn't a big fan of horror. I know a lot of people get into horror movies when they're younger. Um, I remember my brother actually watching it on TV when we were kids, and I, I walked through the room and I was like, nope, that's not for me. Uh, so when I first discovered it was when I was in undergrad, and I just was really taking a deep dive into the horror genre overall. I, I loved horror movies when I was in college, and I just wanted to find out about all horror movies. I mean, you know, not just current ones, but ones all the way going back to the 20s. And and I knew that Night of the Living Dead was one of the big boys of, of the horror genre. And so I, I sought it out and I watched it. I was really encouraged to watch it, actually. I'm a big fan of the Misfits, the punk band, and uh, they have more than one song about Night of the Living Dead, but they have this song called Hunting Humans. And uh, one of the lyrics in the song uh, is Night of the Living Dead. And so just that, that song would get stuck in my head and I really wanted to watch this movie. And uh, when I did, it was just it blew me away. I just thought it was so great. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, as, as you know, I love the misfits as well. Yes, indeed. And my first exposure to this film is a little bit weird. So just bear with me. I, so I'm a big tech person and back in, I think it was high school. It was, uh, I think in high school, I was reading an, an article in PC mag about, this kind of new file sharing platform called uh, uh, BitTorrent. Mm 
And I found this website, publicdomaintorrents.com, and there were just a bunch of movies and TV shows that were in the public domain that you could download completely free. And Night of the Living Dead is in the public domain. Yeah. So I, I added it to my uh, to my torrent client and downloaded it. And because uh, I'd, I'd heard a lot about it, uh, I just had never seen it. And that was, I think, <laughs> one of the better decisions I've ever made. And yeah. since then, I've seen it a bunch of times back uh, a few years back. I think I want to say 2016 when George A. Romero passed away. Yeah. There was a free screening of Night of the Living Dead in Fletcher Hall at Carolina Theater. Uh, and then, so I, I watched it then. And uh, of course, I, I watched it when you hosted the online retro screening. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like we bring up Carolina Theater pretty much every episode. Uh, I always say, you know, <laughs> Celluloid Fiends is sort of like the retro film series, the podcast. So, I mean, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. I mean, you and yeah. I met at the retro, so, you know. Exactly. I think we can just kind of uh, make ourselves honorary retro mascots. Yeah, uh, I think we'll I think we'll just say that. Uh, yeah. And then, of, of course, I, I rewatched it again uh, this week uh, in preparation for talking about the episode. You know, I um, I met Romero, I think, less than a year before he died. And so and that meant the world to me because this movie, as well as several of his other movies, have always just been really important um, to me. And so meeting him was a big deal to me. And speaking of the Misfits, uh, you know, he worked a lot with the Misfits. And I was um, I was wearing a Misfits shirt when I met him at Mad Monster. Me and uh, our friend Donnie met him and he looked at me and, and he went, oh, cool Misfits shirt. And it was just really a high point in my life. That is just a life highlight. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I know. I I love it. We got a picture with him and I just really cherish that picture because he is he's a very important director to me as as well as to probably any horror fan. Uh, So uh, you mentioned that a a lot of Romero's works are pretty important to you. Which are some of your favorite of his films? Ooh, well, I mean, obviously the the dead movies are are the big ones. I mean, you know, just Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead in particular are all masterpieces. Um, as we've talked about in the past, Night of the Living Dead is just one of my favorite films overall. And I really think Day of the Dead is something of an unsung hero. Um, it's a great score. It's a great movie, great special effects. So I, I really like those. I think those are ones that people think about a lot. Uh, another one that immediately comes to mind, though, that is less talked about is a movie called Night Riders, which um, I've seen a couple times, one of which was at one of which was actually at um, in a in a previous life. I went to grad school for medieval history and I went to this big medieval history conference to um, present my research. And one of the fun things they were doing at this conference was they showed the movie Night Riders, which was pretty neat. Um, but Night Riders is about this Renaissance fair troupe that ride around on motorcycles instead of horses and do jousts and live by like an Arthurian medieval code. It's a very strange movie that I really, really like and would recommend to everybody to see. Uh, And obviously also like creep show, you know, is really great. Uh, Romero's favorite of his own movies was Martin, but that one, um, is not as high on my list as some of the others. Oh, and I also really like The Crazies a lot. Uh, George Romero's The Crazies. What about you? Uh, I know you're a Romero guy as well. Oh, yes. Uh, so I I love 
uh, a lot of the dead series. I haven't seen all of them. Nor I. Really, I've only not seen Survival. That's the only one I haven't seen. So I haven't seen Survival. I have not seen Land or Diary. Mm. Uh, but I, I love Night, Day, Dawn. Uh, I I thought Martin was actually quite good, although it's it's one that I I'm going to kind of lump into a group with Last House on the Left, where I'm glad that I watched it in so far as kind of familiarizing myself with kind of a what I think is an important film, but I don't really have any desire to revisit that anytime soon because it was just super bleak. Yeah, it was very bleak. It was very bleak. Uh, and Night of the Living Dead itself is is very much a downer, but in, in kind of a different way. Yeah. Uh, the Crazies is good. I actually really enjoyed the, uh, this was not directed by Romero, but I loved the remake of The Crazies. You like know, the I did too. version. I did too. Is Timothy, uh, Ol- <laughs> Timothy Oliphant in that? I can't remember. Timothy Oliphant's in that, I think. Maybe. I don't, I don't recall the cast list. I think he is, and I really like him. Uh, but I just remember watching that a while back and, and loving it. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I think I think those are those are my favorites. But uh, one, a few that I've been meaning to watch are uh, Night Riders because you've told me a lot yeah. about that, and I saw I've seen a trailer for it, and it looks just batshit. It, it rules, dude! It's really good, actually. Though it's a great movie. I've also heard great things about Monkey Shines, which I haven't watched. Oh yeah. I don't have anything to say. I just also want to see that. <laughs> and then I'd love to at some point finish the dead series. Yeah, I need to go back and finish survival. Like I, I did like land of the dead and I liked diary of the dead. They're not as good as the original movies, but I did enjoy them. And then when survival came out, um, I think it was at a time when I was maybe less into watching a lot of horror movies as I have been at other points in my life. And also everybody just said it was really not good sadly. So I never went and watched it, but I need to just cast off that opinion and, and give it a shot. Uh, Because I'd like to be a completionist and finish watching his (laughs) dead movies. Yeah. Uh, And this has been this is a very influential film. So we kind of touched a little bit on the fact that, you know, this spawned a very successful franchise. But there are a few ways in which it's, it's incredibly important. So one is that this is the film that redefined what zombie meant. Yeah. And what's really curious is the word zombie is never used in this movie. Yeah, never once. Ghouls. Exactly. The the, the living dead, the undead. Yeah, they never call them zombies. They say ghouls. And, And I like that because... It adds to kind of the mystery a little bit of what's going on. And that's one of the things I I really like about this movie is that they... I think this movie is is really a masterwork of storytelling, particularly considering the fact that it was done on a shoestring budget by a rookie crew and a rookie cast. Like, it's just a magic (laughs) movie to come out of that. But the storytelling in this is so great. And I think they do a wonderful job of letting us, the audience, find out what's going on at the same time that the characters are. And so if they just kind of came out and were like zombies and everybody was like, oh yeah, zombies, we all know what that is. It wouldn't be quite as impactful as it is when we kind of just have to describe what's going on. Yeah, totally. And one, one part that I really enjoy about this movie is you don't actually get a definitive answer for why 
Yeah. The dead are beginning to rise again. There's speculation about uh, like space radiation. Yep. But nothing is ever conclusively decided. And I kind of like that air of mystery and and kind of how you as the audience member are put into the same perspective as the characters. You know, you're thrown into this hectic situation and you have no idea what's going on. You're kind of just trying to figure it out along with them. Yeah, I I love that too. And and if you, it's interesting. I mean, you know, because the movies are, are, to my understanding, all, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, they're all supposed to take place sort of in the same continuity. Um, And it's, it's funny because if you, if you watch the films, you see people having different interpretations of what's going on. Like you just said, there's there's some argument in this between some of the characters you see on television about whether or not this space radiation coming off this... Uh, they, they mentioned that a satellite was coming back into Earth's orbit and they detected a strange radiation and they blew it up. And some scientists think that that radiation released into the atmosphere is what's causing it. And the military leader is like, no, no. And then famously, obviously, in, when Dawn of the Dead rolls around, the explanation given is that when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the Earth. So they give different you know, explanations at different times, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, but I feel like that is fitting. And it's probably what would happen if there were some sort of cataclysmic event yeah. like this. You know, people would just be speculating and kind of throwing out different ideas. So, so yeah, Yeah. I I feel feel like that is actually very kind of accurate, uh, an accurate portrayal of what would happen in some sort of post-apocalyptic scenario. And I'll say, um, you know, speaking of them finding out things as they go along, it's funny, as many times as I've seen this movie, uh, it's funny that you can still pick up new things. And one thing that I noticed today that I've never really paid a lot of attention to is that several times in this movie, the kind of experts that you're seeing on TV predict that this whole zombie situation will be over within 24 to 48 hours. So they're expecting it to just kind of fizzle out after the radiation situation goes away. Uh, And then, like I said, if you follow the franchise, you find out that obviously that doesn't happen. But I just kind of thought that was interesting that that you kind of see them being like, yeah, give it a couple days and this will all this will all be over. Yeah. And and one one part that I enjoyed about that was, again, you know, I do think that probably would have been what someone would speculate but also it doesn't try to kind of shoehorn in a sequel as so many modern films do uh, there yeah. there were a couple films i watched recently and i really enjoyed them for the most part up until the end when it just quickly tries to set up a sequel and in fact there was no thought of doing a sequel to this movie until as i'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> the uh romero saw very little money out of this movie because uh of various things that went on with copyrights and that's and and the the promotion promoters and everything uh so he, he saw very little money out of this and and so it wasn't until a little over a decade later that he decided oh, i probably should make a sequel and try to try to cash in a little bit yeah, it's crazy to think that as popular as this movie was and still is, yeah. that he never really saw much yeah. from that. Yeah, uh, but one thing I don't want to breeze past is what you were just saying a moment ago, which I know we talked a little bit about in our Zombie 2 episode, but uh, the fact that this movie uh, really kind of reinvented what what a zombie is, right? Like, I think now you could go up to just about anybody in America and say the word zombie, and they're going to have a vision in their mind and that vision is the George Romero zombie. 
you know, before this, it was stuff like I Walked with a Zombie and White Zombie. And uh, I think there's one called, what, Island of the Zombies and and all that stuff. But it, uh, it was all voodoo zombies. It was um, sometimes they were people re- returned from the dead, I guess, usually. But they were done so by like voodoo magic and they weren't eating flesh. They were being controlled by an evil sorcerer to do his bidding and that sort of thing. And. Romero came along and, and cooked up this whole like dead people coming back to life and eating the living and you can only kill them with a bullet to the head and all that jazz. And it was really very inventive and and groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of uh, to dovetail off what you were saying there about the Haitian zombies, a really good modern Haitian zombie film. Uh, modern it came out in the 80s I, I think i brought it up on the podcast before but i'm just a huge advocate for it the serpent and the rainbow west yeah. craven yeah you should bring it up as much as you want because people should know about that movie and watch it because it's great yeah i mean west craven is is another one of those directors that just so prolific pretty much everything he touched was was gold but for some reason that is one of his films that tends to kind of slip through the cracks quite a bit yeah, it really does. And it's a great movie. And like you say, it's one of the rare examples of a Haitian zombie uh, movie that takes place in a post-Romero world, you know. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost, uh, I mean, it did not kind of have the uh, same effect as Romero's Night of the Living Dead did. But, yeah. you know, it's almost like a, a modern version of that in terms of kind of reminding people of what zombies were. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, and another thing to point out about this movie when we're talking about how groundbreaking it was, uh, I don't have as much to say about this. I just think it's kind of an interesting thought is that I've often heard this movie alongside of Hitchcock's Psycho listed as sort of turning points to in creating the modern horror genre. You know, sort of like a, a doorway moving away from the old Universal and, and Hammer monster movies. And then in the 50s, you have a lot of kind of sci-fi horror, things like uh, The Fly and... Uh, things like that. And then in this movie, kind of moving us towards the sort of more modern day horror movie feel along with psycho. Yeah. And I I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, Interestingly, there was not a rating system at the time when this came out. Yeah. Right. And there are some absolute horror stories from when night of the living dead came out, like accounts of, you know, six-year-old kids in, in the theater just absolutely sobbing. Yeah. Uh, because there hadn't really been anything until this point that was as graphic as Night of the Living Dead was. Yeah, that's right. You know, the story with those little kids is that uh, there used to be these Saturday matinees and they used to play like uh, in the movie theaters and they would, so they would play like old, you know, old universal monster movies. Cause by that point they still scared kids. Like if you ever read Stephen King's it, you know, you can tell the characters in that talk about going to see the wolf man and stuff and being really scared. Or, or I think they're seeing, I was a teenage werewolf, but anyways, that kind of stuff still scared people. Uh, but it was generally seen as acceptable for children. And then somehow this movie, probably because it was shot in black and white and, and things like that ended up, getting mixed in with those Saturday matinees and distributed and all these little kids watched it. And apparently we just were horrified seeing what was going on in this movie. Yeah. The, the whole cannibalism aspect yeah. is uh, really powerful. And, and it was kind of really breaking taboo there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even watching it today, it, you know, it, it's not, you know, scary by today's standards. Yeah. 
but it is it is still striking and uh the effects i actually think hold up incredibly well wonderful yeah oh they're they're phenomenal uh and interestingly uh i'm gonna i'm gonna get on my soapbox and and kind of praise practical effects once again as i do in in every single episode can i get name in oh amen brother (laughs) Uh, but Bosco chocolate syrup was used to simulate blood. Yeah. And then when you see the zombies eating flesh, uh, they are actually eating roast ham covered in chocolate sauce. And, uh, and they got a lot of, um, they got a lot of animal parts from a local, a local, like, uh, butcher distributor person. Like he, he ran a bunch of, uh, meat distribution <laughs> plant and donated a lot of meat and animal parts. And so in places you see the zombies playing with intestines and they're real pig intestines. And you know what? It works so well. It, they're very effective. Yeah. Right. Even yes. today. Yeah. It's great. I'm with you on that. And I just think that's another indicator of, of I'm always, and granted, you know, we're cinephiles. We, we really get into this kind of stuff, but I just really, when you think about this movie being made on just a shoestring budget um, by a production crew, including Romero and, and most of the people working with him who were, I mean, essentially a step up from student filmmakers. Most of the actors in this are either not well-known rookie actors or even non-actors. You know, they were just kind of doing this one role. And I just think that somehow everything in this movie comes together so well. Uh, storytelling, pacing, like you said, it's beautifully shot. The effects are great. Uh, even the music is fantastic. I just think it's just a real. It's just one of those kind of magic moments in in movie history. Yeah, it it really is, uh, and it just it holds up so well. I would say this is a timeless classic. Yeah. Um, I would too. And so while we're talking about that, uh, there were a couple things about the storytelling that I, I wanted to, to discuss briefly. One of them is I'm always struck by the way that they do exposition in this movie. I just think it's so well done. You can, you can watch a lot of films and they try to like shoehorn in dialogue to let you know the backstory and let you kind of know what's going on with the characters. In this movie, everything just kind of flows pretty naturally. You find out about, about, Ben when he is talking to Barbara and kind of he has a moment where he sort of seems like I guess he's really trying to calm her down but you can tell he's also afraid and he tells the whole story about how he came to be at the deserted farmhouse and saw all these creatures attacking somebody and so you kind of learn a little bit about him but then the way that you really learn the story is via this really ingenious um narrative device of the radio and TV broadcasts. And so once again, we're finding out as an audience at the same time as the characters are finding out what's going on. And I just, I'm, I'm always very struck by that in this film. Yeah. And even uh, the first zombie sighting is one of these just shocking moments where you yeah. are, are kind of thrust into the film and, and kind of find out about what's going on as the characters do. So uh, Barbara and and Johnny go to visit their father's graveside, and Barbara apparently used to be kind of scared of going to the graveyard and kind of still retains a little bit of that anxiety. And Johnny, uh, uh, you know, just kind of being the playful prankster 
sibling that he is starts kind of taunting her. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're coming. They're coming you, for Barbara. you. Look, <laughs> there comes one of them now. And then he gets killed by this yeah. strange person. And it's not until later on that you find out that he's one of the undead. Yeah, actually much later on, which I think is really cool. I wrote down the sequence of that as I was watching it today. So at first, the the radio broadcast, like you said, at first you're just like, what's up with this dude attacking him in the cemetery? I mean, you know, I put myself in the shoes of someone who had not seen a thousand zombie movies. And so then the the radio broadcast kind of say there's this mass wave of of mass murder going on. And we don't really know what's happening, but all these people are just murdering people. And then later we find out that not only are they murdering people, they're eating people. And then finally, at the end, this new bro- this news broadcast says, we just learned that these aren't people. They're actually dead people coming back and doing all this. So it just like keeps building up the whole time, which I think really is effective. It's incredibly effective. Uh, and I think that's kind of part of the, the brilliance of this film is kind of the minimalism. There are not a lot of character backstories. Yes. And what kind of little you learn about the characters is is all told through uh, through dialogue. Uh, you know, you don't really, even by the end of the film, fully understand exactly what's going on. You know, you're able to piece together that the dead are coming back to life and, and feeding on the living. But you don't know exactly why that's happening. Uh, it just it really keeps you in the dark and. You know, these are it kind of leaves you with these lingering questions. And I think that's part of what gives it this haunting vibe is kind of that uncertainty and and not knowing. Uh, And then the other element is just kind of the uh, how nihilistic this film is. Yeah, for sure. So, So all of the characters, the core group of characters. They are they're all dead by the end of the film. Yep. And what makes it so bleak is that only a few of them are actually killed by zombies yeah in fact a lot of them are just kind of killed by by the living yeah i think i think and i think that was kind of one of the actual you know points that that romero wanted to get across with this and and i think he makes that point yeah very clearly and and concisely so uh ben ends up shooting harry they, they kind of, from the moment they meet, have this argument. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a lot of bad blood between them, even though they don't know each other prior to the events of the film. Uh, ben is shot through a window by this rescue party because I guess they mistake him for a zombie. That's another one for the fire. Exactly. He's, just, he's shot and then they just throw him on the fire. And that is how this film ends. So our hero, Ben, ends up surviving the night and there's a zombie horde that's in the house. By the time he emerges from the basement, it's dispersed. So you think he's going to survive and then he's shot by a rescue party. Yeah, and and it's just shocking ending. I remember the first time I ever saw the movie and your hero makes it through the whole night and you're like, oh, good, man. These people are going to rescue Ben. And then just, bam, that's another one for the fire. Yeah. And I, I do think this would still be a, a great film, even if that the ending had 
been such that Ben survives, but I think it's one of the, I think it contributes to this film being so memorable in in that, you know, it was ballsy. It took that chance and it it killed off this person that you're rooting for the entire film. But in a a way that didn't feel like a, you know, you didn't feel cheated and you didn't feel like the story was, was a letdown because of it. it. It felt normal. It felt like what kind of inevitably had to happen. Exactly. And, and then, uh, two two other characters, uh, uh, Tom and Judy, they are also killed by their own hand. They're trying to escape in a pickup truck, and they accidentally light it on fire. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and what an explosion, too. Uh, that truck must have come from the future. I always say the 80s is when vehicles blow up so easily, but man, it just went up. Uh, another thing to point out, though, now these were characters that were not killed by uh, humans, but speaking of the to- the film having like a dark and nihilistic tone, uh, Barbara is killed by the zombie of her own brother who shows up again and comes in and drags her out into the zombie horde and she's killed that way. Uh, fun fact, he was wearing driving gloves that they very prominently um, showed at the first of the movie when he was still alive. And that was because since he wasn't a recognizable actor, uh, they wanted to have him to have on those gloves when he comes in as a zombie. So you would get the point and the, the audiences wouldn't be like, so what they wanted him to realize, Oh, the, the gloves, that's her brother. So that's pretty dark. And then, um, what's her name? Helen. I kind of miss her name. I think it's Harry and Helen, but Helen, Mrs. Cooper is killed by her own zombie daughter. Yeah, so even a lot of the characters who are killed by zombies, it's pretty grim. Yeah. Uh, But with that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will keep breaking down Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night. Of the living dead. Hello. We are back from the grave and we are discussing night. Of the living dead. They're coming for you, Barbara. 
So we were discussing a little bit about the characters and a lot of their grim fates earlier. And I really want to discuss the characters a bit more because they're very unique. And even though most of them kind of don't know each other going into the events of this film, they very quickly in a number of cases form pretty strong opinions of one another. Yeah, I am always struck by the characters in this movie. Once again, I mean, I, I don't want to say they were all non-actors because, for example, uh, Dwayne Jones, who played Ben, was apparently a pretty prolific. Uh, I think he was a stage actor in the Philadelphia air area, but most of them are not well-known film stars, at least at the time. And several members of the cast were, in fact, non-actors. They were members of the production crew, the production company, uh, Image 10. And um, and so they just kind of played parts in the movies. So I'm always struck by how well acted this movie is uh, and how kind of real the characters feel, uh, even though they were working with not not big names. Yeah, uh, there's just a very kind of raw, organic vibe to a lot of the acting. And Dwayne Jones just really steals the show. Absolutely. I was just about to say those exact words. He just, he is just a a magnetic presence uh, on on the camera from the moment he comes in. He really is. Uh, And, and he kind of very quickly becomes the, the hero of the film. And uh, he, uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear your answer. I, I think I can predict it, but he was hands down my favorite yeah, a character in in the movie Ben was. Uh, was he your favorite character as well? Quite easily, yes. I mean, quite easily. He's just such a remarkable character, so well acted. Yeah, absolutely, my favorite character for sure. Uh, but fascinatingly, his the character of Ben was actually intended to be very different, and very he was different. going to be a, a truck driver who is uh, kind of crude, but a, a white truck driver. Yes, Uh, but after Dwayne Jones landed the role, George A. Romero rewrote the part to fit with his audition. But it should be said, um, listening to Romero on some of the commentary tracks, he rewrote it to fit Dwayne Jones's personality, but not to address the issue of the race of the character, which is what I think makes the character's race. So you you hear people talk a lot about the race of, of the character of Ben. And that's because this movie comes out in 68. So obviously in the height of the civil rights era, and you have this black leading man and, and it's not the first movie that had had a black leading man, but at the same time, it was a, a strange movie in that there was a black leading man, but it was not a film about race it was just a black leading man and that's just what it was. Uh, I I don't know how to say that more clearly, but what I'm saying is race is not the point of this movie. It just presented a black leading man as though that were normal, which was uh, really refreshing and unique for the time period. Yeah. uh, For the time, it was a very ahead of its time film in that regard. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people talk about, uh, about that, about uh, Ben being a, a, a black lead at the time. And, and it is remarkable, but what makes it so remarkable is that they didn't make a big deal out of it. It's just, he just is who he is. He's a strong leading character who happens to be black. 
And another thing, as I was watching it today, I was struck with certain lines uh, that were delivered by that character and how abnormal that must have seemed at the time. One particular line that Dwayne Jones delivers very well, he says, he's talking to Harry, and they have this ongoing debate about whether or not um, they want to be, you know, uh, Ben wants them to stay upstairs and not go to the cellar until it's the very, you know, last option. And Harry just keeps insisting, no, we have to get out of the cellar right now. They're going to get in the house. And finally, uh, Ben looks at him and says, you can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. And at the time I thought, you know, for 1968, that must've just been a really novel line for that character to say. Yeah, you know, I, I bet it probably was. <laughs> and, and you know, if you take a look at those two choices, the decision to go down to the basement makes no sense yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. And that's actually something that I was going to, a question I was going to pose to you in just a moment, but <laughs> we'll go ahead and say it now. Uh, so I feel like with this movie, uh, doing research for it for the retro screening, um, I read a lot of places and heard a lot of places where they where people would say, well, it turns out in the end that Harry was right, that Mr. Cooper was right. They did have to go down to the basement because Ben, obviously the zombies eventually break into the house and Ben ends up going down and locking himself in the basement. Um, but I don't think that he's right. I don't think that Mr. Cooper's right. I think that Ben is right because... Yeah, it would be silly for you to go down there and start in the basement where you can't get out. Ben was right to stay upstairs where they might have had a fighting chance to get away and then as a very last resort, go down into the basement. And I was going to ask what you thought about that, but based on what you just said, I'm assuming it sounds like we're in agreement. Yeah, and and this is based on kind of what happens and and what goes awry in the build-up to that final moment when Ben goes down to the basement and then ultimately emerges later on, but they do have a viable chance to escape. So uh, Tom and Judy uh, and and Ben go out to kind of gas up this pickup truck. Unfortunately, you know, Tom ends up lighting the pickup truck on fire and it explodes. But, you know, had that worked out, they could have escaped. And, and, and uh, also Ben fortified the house pretty well yeah if uh if mr cooper had not you know stayed in the basement the whole time and and he had uh, helped out ben in fortifying the house then perhaps the zombies wouldn't have broken in in the first place yeah i agree with you i I, I'm, i'm glad we're in agreement on that i had heard like i say doing research for this several people being like well it turns out in the end that mr cooper was right and i'm like i don't i don't think that he was right i think that's just like a last resort to go down to the basement Right. And I think kind of his uh, being argumentative and refusing to help Ben formulate an escape and fortify the house. I think that is ultimately what forced Ben into taking that last resort and going down to the basement. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Well, that's that's well, that's that issue resolved. Then sounds like great minds have come together and agree that Ben was right. Uh, but I, while we're talking about the character of Ben and, and how much we both thought that Dwayne Jones did such a great job, you had referenced that he was originally supposed to be a more of a crude character. Uh, and, and the dialogue apparently was rewritten because, uh, Dwayne Jones was such an erudite gentleman. Uh, and he, re- he basically refused to speak the lines as written. They just didn't seem natural to him. Uh, and I'm really glad they did. Uh, I, because, you know, I just can't imagine that actor and that character coming off as so crude, but there's a couple places where, um, 
the older character kind of stayed in and apparently the actor Dwayne Jones was very uncomfortable. One of those moments is when he slaps Barbara. Uh, apparently they had to do a lot of convincing to get Dwayne Jones to slap Judith O'Day as Barbara. Uh, he just didn't want to do it. And that was just sort of a holdover. And, and they had to do that because they had, it was written in the script that, you know, Judith O'Day is kind of unconscious for a little while and she faints after he slaps her. Uh, and the other thing is that Dwayne Jones was very uncomfortable with guns and Ben has to hold a gun for a lot of the movie. And apparently in between shots, Dwayne Jones insisted that somebody take the gun from him and only hand it to him right before the shot was going <laughs> to kick up again. Uh, when I was uh, doing some research for the show notes, I read both of those and uh, especially the part about hitting Barbara that it kind of made more sense when I discovered that, uh, the original character for Ben was supposed to be completely different because that's one of those moments that seems kind of out of place. Yeah. Like I, I think it, I think uh, Dwayne Jones and I think Romero kind of tried to shape it such that it wasn't really intended as kind of him uh, lashing out, but more as him trying to kind of uh, physically, right awaken barbara from her kind of catatonic yeah. state but it's still it still just seems very out of place for the character of ben yeah I agree. as he is in this movie yeah i, I agree with that it, it is something that's kind of shocking now uh we're both uh, fans of older movies enough to know that that unfortunately that sort of thing happened more often in old movies than it does now um but yeah it's still very shocking and, and it seems almost out of place i too was like when i first doing research realized that that character was originally supposed to be very different. It was like a light bulb went off and I was like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It, it just kind of it explains things away quite, uh, quite quickly. Uh, one, one part that I think is just really fascinating about this film is just, uh, kind of how the fight between Ben and Harry just drives so much of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That, that conflict is, is really like you say, it's like you said earlier, and it's kind of like we made the point in, um, in the jaws episode, you know, this movie is ostensibly a movie about a group of people trapped in a house, trying to stave off these undead monsters. But in fact, the real, the real conflict and, and the real, menace is is internal right so the the actual driving conflict of the film is this conflict between who's going to be in control between harry and and ben and this is a film that a lot of people have uh, attributed symbol a lot of symbolism to you know people have you know said this is about the vietnam war uh <laughs> you know they uh in, uh, so I, I mentioned watching The Chilling Tales of Sabrina. Yeah. So in the first episode, a couple of the characters go to see a screening of this. And afterwards, they're sitting in this diner and discussing it. And they're talking about one of them says, like, it's about Cold War world uh, politics. And then another one says, no, it's clearly about the death of the nuclear family. Yeah, it's interesting. In the commentaries, I had always heard the most discussed thing I had always kind of heard people talk about was the race thing, uh, which is funny because Romero says that, you know, he wasn't really trying to make a movie about race. It's just to him, 
and to all the people involved in the production, having a black lead was was just normal. That was just a normal thing, which is, like I said, I just think that's really cool because that's working towards normalizing having a black lead at a time when that needed to happen. Uh, But then he did say he was much more and he always would be with his films, much more um, intentional about some of the other themes you're talking about, about. Um, sort of a Vietnam War feel. He talks a lot about how the the feel of of the country at the time with Vietnam War and all that stuff um, influenced how they made these films and and the eye through which they viewed the world. Yeah, and I think in in that regard, it was it was very successful. Uh, and I mean, when you just think about the context of everything that was going on in the sixties. You know, there were a lot of kind of messages that, that you could have. Yeah, right. And and I know that, like I say, Romero carried a lot of those themes over into a lot of his other films as well. So, yeah. Uh, one uh, kind of speaking of Vietnam a little bit, one little tidbit that I thought was fascinating. Apparently, Romero originally wanted Tom Savini to do the makeup for this movie. But Savini was actually overseas as a combat photographer in Vietnam at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually did not know that until today. Yeah, so it it wasn't until Dawn of the Dead in 78 that uh, he actually uh, was able to contribute to the Dead series yeah, I mean, and then after that, Savini basically kind of took over the horror special effects world for a while. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. I did not know that until today. Yeah, I I thought that was absolutely crazy. And, and the effects in this movie are phenomenal as they are. Oh, they're so good. But I, was, <laughs> but I was like, what, you know, think about what Savini could have done. I mean, I, f- I feel like he probably would have done, you know, equally as good a job, but... Yeah, I would have been interested to see what Savini effects would have looked like at that early stage of his career. Because, you know, he's kind of really well known for gruesome effects that he did later on in things like uh, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, that sort of thing. Uh, some of the Friday, well, the initial Friday the 13th movie, um, The Prowler, things like that. Oh, um, God, The Prowler. Yeah, dude. Um, and then another character that I really wanted to discuss was Barbara. Uh, I, once again, I, I had the uh, opportunity to meet, um, Judith O'Day and, uh, Russ Steiner a few years ago, and they were both really nice and wonderful people. Uh, but I, I've always thought that both of them were actually really good in this. And I'm always really, uh, struck by Judith O'Day as Barbara. But I think that if, if there's any complaint lodged against this movie, it's usually a complaint about the character of Barbara. So I was just curious kind of what your thoughts were on that character. So I, I can understand why someone might complain about her character because she pretty much spends most of the film once the zombie attacks begin being comatose, essentially, and terrified and looking scared and screaming. But I, I think... It, a, that's a very difficult demeanor to pull off well, which she absolutely does. And then B, I think it's a very natural reaction that someone might have if there are hordes of the undead cannibalizing people all around you and trying to break down your door. Yeah, 
Yeah, I 100% so, agree. So, yeah, I, I actually enjoyed her performance for that. And I think you kind of have uh, in this small group of characters, you have a number of different possible reactions, right? Like Ben tries to remain as level headed as possible and kind of takes control of the situation and, and even tries to calm down those around him. Uh, Barbara just completely freaks out and becomes catatonic basically. Uh, and then you got, you got Harry who's trying to be a control freak. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then you have Tom and Judy who were sort of a middle ground and, and kind of trying to, you know, stick together and, and get people to come together as a group. They're just little sweethearts. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I liked I I enjoyed her character, but I can also see why someone might complain about it. Yeah. And obviously the complaint about her is that uh, unfortunately in the history of Hollywood, women have often not been given a lot of agency in films. Uh, obviously, that's a, a very common a complaint that people have now looking back at a lot of older and a, and a justified one looking back at older films. And I've always viewed her character kind of through that lens. A couple of thoughts though, that I have um, one is exactly what you just said. Her being petrified is a completely believable reaction. And also I think once again, Barbara through her almost catatonic fear is the representation of the audience's fear, right? We know how terrifying this situation is because Barbara is scared out of her wits. And so I think that her character and the way she's played helps to convey that emotion onto the audience. And also we project our fears onto her. She's sort of a canvas for our um, fears. Uh, The other thing that I will say is that... um, it's sort of like, um, well, I'm glad that you actually said, I didn't know this until you had written it in the show notes, that apparently the original idea was to have her be more of a strong leading character and that they were just so impressed by the way that Judith O'Day played her that they kind of changed it to be that that scared, frightened character, which I, I had never heard that before, and I thought that was a really interesting um, point. Yeah, I, I'd be very curious to see what the original film would have looked like with with her as that character. Well, you kind of can, because the 1990 remake of this film, George Romero uh, was heavily involved in and reworked his... Uh, he worked actually with John Russo again, and uh, I think Russ Steiner even got involved again and reworked the script. And in the 1990 version, she does play a much more level-headed, you know, strong female character. And so now that those, those two movies have both existed as long as I have been into horror movies. So I've always known both of those movies as sort of bookends. And I like being able to see both versions of that character. And uh, I have not seen the 1990 remake, which I need to do, uh, especially now that you mentioned that, because uh, that just kind of seems like a, a a very neat r- remake. Because yes. I love when a remake does something where it stays true to the original, but makes some kind of small but significant changes that really differentiate it. And it seems like uh, this does, just kind of by reinventing Barbara's character. 
That's exactly what it does. And I, I know at the time it, it actually got some uh, criticism for being too too much like the original. People are kind of like, what's the point? But the point is, is like you just said, those subtle shifts, right? We're able to see in an alternate universe what Barbara's character would be like if she kind of kept it a little more in control and kept a little more cool. And in that movie, she really she really steps it up to the point where she almost uh, takes on a lot of the characteristics that um, that Ben has in the initial the original movie. And kind of well, uh, you mentioned some kind of different changes. Uh, one series that I want to talk about, uh, we've discussed, of course, the of the dead series, but I want to talk about return of the living dead Love a it. little bit. Yeah. Love it. So this was a franchise uh, and it was it had uh, John Russo at the at the head of it. And it kind of takes a more comedic route in portraying zombies. Yeah. And it's, I still consider it, especially because uh, John Russo was involved, somewhat canon and kind of like a, a what if scenario uh, that diverges fr- uh, from the Romero dead franchise and is, kind of a direct sequel to night of the living dead. Yeah, it's a, that's a good way to look at it because that's pretty much exactly what it is, right? Um, return of the living dead was, was sort of the brainchild of John Russo, the co-writer of night of the living dead. And, uh, as part of their like parting of the ways, uh, John Russo allowed, you know, Romero basically to continue making sequels, official sequels to night of the living dead. But Russo got to keep the title living dead. Right. That's the reason why Romero's later movies don't say Dawn of the Living Dead. They say Dawn of the Dead. And John Russo got to make Return of the Living Dead. And it seemed like a fair compromise. Yeah. And we get some great movies. We get some great movies out of both of them. I- I'm glad that both of those can exist because, as you and I have both discussed in a previous episode, we both love Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. That, uh, we're actually, I think the first three Return of the Living Dead films I thought were fabulous. Yeah. I've mm. only seen the first two. The first two are very similar. The third one is is kind of different. Uh, and and some of the later ones I still thought were good, but it, it kind of lost a little bit of the of the pizzazz in later films. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that whole franchise is is great. There's there's one hilarious scene in I can't remember if it's Return of the, of the Living Dead part one or part two, but there's one hilarious scene when uh, like an ambulance shows up and, you know, a pair of zombies starts, uh, you know, starts eating the, the medics. And then they, there's some line like send more medics or something like that. Send, send more paramedics. It's from Return <laughs> of the Living Dead. And I remember that line because there is a zombie themed hardcore band called send more paramedics that exists and write all their music or they did. I don't know if they're still a band, but they have albums that are all about zombies and their name is send more paramedics. That is a very niche reference. Yeah, 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 I know. And they just named their band after of it. But all their songs and albums were zombie themed. It was pretty cool. And uh, did I, so wait, did I, did we watch the first uh, Return of the Living Dead film together at, at Alamo? We did on 35 millimeter. Yeah, I thought yeah. I remember that. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. uh, I I remember you were, you were really hyping that one. And I, I remember we watched that and, and it lived up to your high praise. Oh, was that your first viewing of that? 
Yeah, it was. I don't. I don't know that I. Knew I, that, I think though. it. I think it was interesting. I. You know, I can't remember. It was either my first viewing, or I had I'd seen it, but just like at home. It was one of the two. That's a really great first viewing on thirty five millimeter in the theater. Wow, that's awesome. My recollection is is that it was my first viewing. Yeah, a, it was a really good time. I'm a, obviously both of us are crazy about that kind of stuff, and I, just seeing it on film, I was like, "Ooh, goody!" <laughs> yeah, God, that that was a good one. Um, but it yeah, it it kind of has a a very comedic tone. Although, so Night of the Living Dead does not have any comedy in it, right? But interestingly, Dawn of the Dead actually does have quite a bit of comedy and it's yeah it's more it's more dark comedy and it's it's subtle it's not kind of the slapstick that you'll find in the return of the living dead series but dawn of the dead is one of those movies that i think is is shockingly uh comedic yeah i think that's i think that's the personality of the filmmaker shining through by all accounts george romero was a very uh humorous and and very uh, affable person but his films were were very much either or. Either they had comedy in them or they were just really brutal. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I like that. I like that he can have those different those different modes. It's just kind of a sign of a of a genius filmmaker. And, and even gel the two. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like you said, there's some shocking violence in uh in Dawn of the Dead, but also some really interesting comedy. Uh and, and you know, there's even comedic aspects of like Day of the Dead and things like that too, with Bub with Bub the zombie and Day of the Dead learning how to shave and things like that. Yeah. Uh and and I think kind of that element he Romero toyed around with zombies in a really thought provoking way. He's the king. He's the king of zombies. <laughs> He really is. And and obviously another, you know, we won't talk about it too much since we've talked about it ad nauseum in a previous episode, but another one of those kind of quasi sequels is is my beloved Zombie 2, Fulci's Zombie 2, uh, that is a an unofficial sequel to the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. So Zombie 2 being a sequel to Dawn of the Dead. And uh, you know, uh, you you've kind of talked uh, before on on previous episodes where we delved into some Italian films and, and giallo films, uh, kind of about how there were a lot of Italian films that kind of would would be uh, unofficial sequels. But yeah. uh, Night of the Living Dead actually does have a lot of movies that tried to capitalize on its name and its success and were able to do so because it's in the public domain. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently this is so sad. Apparently that is because the, the original name of the film was night of the flesh eaters. And up until almost the time it was made, it was called night of the flesh eaters. And when they changed to night of the living dead, they changed the production, like the title card, but just simply forgot to display the copyright logo. And apparently with the way the laws were back then, that was enough to make it not copyrighted and in the public domain. And that is just tragic to think about because, yeah, I mean, look at, look at how much it made at the box office. And of course, you know, uh, uh, video sales. I mean, this thing would have made Romero a, a fortune. Of course uh, he, he did, luckily managed to have a ton of success yeah uh you know later on in his career uh, and it's kind of incredible to look back on night of the living dead and think this was his first feature film oh it's amazing i mean it's amazing because it's i mean 
very rare that a, that a first film, you know, is is so good and so well remembered. Once again, I would say this is one of those movies that even people who don't like horror movies and know nothing about them, if you walk up to them and say Night of the Living Dead, they're at least going to know what you're talking about. Yeah, and you know, uh, so I mentioned I mentioned on the the Chilling Tales of Sabrina in the first episode, they they go watch this. So in in another film that I watched recently. Uh, in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, there's a scene when a couple of the characters go to a drive-in and it's set in 1968 and guess what they're watching? Yeah. Yeah. Night of the Living Dead. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of these films, I agree with you, I think a lot of people who, you know, say they aren't into horror films would still, you know, watch this film or have seen it. Uh, it's It's a movie that just kind of has been ingrained in pop culture so much to the point where, you know, when there's a, when there's a, a film or, or TV show and someone goes to a, to a movie, it's oftentimes like this playing on the, on the screen in a, yeah. uh, in a movie. Um, and I, I would, I would argue that this is another of those films sort of like, um, sort of like I said about Jaws. And I would also say about Hitchcock psycho that transcends genre and is simply just not only a great horror film, but a great film period. 100%. And then it just kind of, I don't know, it just boggles my mind that this was Romero's first film. Yeah, it's wild. That it's this excellent. And then not only that, but he went on to make a ton of other movies that are also celebrated as classics. Like I think, uh, you know, I think Dawn of the Dead is arguably better than Night of the Living Dead. It's It's at least on par with it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I would say to a to a lot of people, Dawn of the Dead is on is certainly on par with it. As we discussed in in the Zombie Two episode, Dawn of the Dead is is really the film that set sort of the template. I mean, without Dawn of the Dead, there is no Walking Dead, there is no '80s zombie movie craze. It, it, that's all Dawn of the Dead, you know. Yeah, and but... even speaking of Romero, speaking of Romero, even the man has been uh, has passed away several years ago, sadly. But even now, uh, just this year, a a Living Dead novel was just released uh, that you know that was apparently his last kind of masterwork he was working on, and never finished. And a, another author who was a big fan of his came along and finished it. And apparently, it's supposed to be really good. So I'm I'm hoping to read that sometime soon. I'm I really might have to check that out. It's out now in hardcover. I almost bought it the other day, but uh, I haven't picked it up yet. That might be a good October read. Oh, yeah. I have one more thing I wanted to talk about, and that is the score, because we always talk a little bit about the movie scores. And I think this one is a really interesting score uh, in that this movie has great music. And I would have never known this until once again doing the research. But this movie, all the music came from what's what's what used to be known as library music, uh, which was a thing that was done at the time, particularly in low budget, you know, genre movies, horror movies, sci-fi movies. Uh, Capitol Records had what they called their high Q collection. They actually had a couple different collections you could choose from, uh, and and basically they were just all these albums, and you could go through and pick out these instrumental cues and use them in your in your film. Uh, the music that is used in Night of the Living Dead was was used in a lot of other movies, notably things like Teenagers from Outer Space. Uh, but but just you always hear people talk about how the music fits so perfectly. And the reason for that is because George Romero was just such an excellent editor that he just kind of he understood music, even though I don't think he was a music, musician himself, really. But he understood music and he just took these cues and just perfectly matched them with what was going on in the movie. 
It is bonkers when you consider that because it's the modern day equivalent of using uh, royalty free yeah. music in a in a film, which most modern filmmakers would absolutely balk at that idea. But then when you take a look at this, Romero kind of did the same thing. Yeah. And he made it work. So I, I think you make a, an amazing point that the uh, the music fits so well here. Not because it was composed for the film, because it wasn't. Yeah. But because Romero just had a a true knack for for filmmaking, not just the, you know, an eye for the visuals, but he, you know, he had an ear for what went into a a good soundtrack and he just understood filmmaking uh, all around. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like you said, if, if I hadn't just been doing research and found that out, I would never have guessed that the music wasn't intentionally composed for this movie. I think this movie has one of the more iconic openings of all time with that little, with that car just kind of slowly making its way up to the cemetery and the, the kind of sparse uh, credits going. And, and behind that, there's this kind of eerie, theme going on that just perfectly fits the mood uh and it was just such a shock to me to find that that actually wasn't composed for the movie romero just really knew how to pick them yeah it's it's a super haunting opening uh and and it's it uh like the rest of the film there's kind of that uh terrifying minimalism yep to it for sure the terrifying minimalism is a great tagline for this film <laughs> right yeah <laughs> uh yeah i mean everything from from the bare bones story to uh, even the budget yeah yeah uh, I'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you brought up the soundtrack uh because i think i think most people probably do not know that it was basically kind of stock music yeah, that was used it- and you can hear the same music in other movies, just not quite to the same effect. Yeah, well, because, I mean, they, were, they didn't have Romero behind them. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you want you want to rate this one? Yes, I do. And I no no shock here. This is absolutely a five star movie in my book. Uh, as I've said, not only do I rank it very high among my list of horror films um definitely in a definitely one of my top three horror films but i also just rank it as one of my favorite movies of all time i just think it's one of the great american movies i think it's one of those that transcends genre and i think to consider a movie that was made by a rookie director with a rookie cast and crew for the most part like i say dwayne jones was a pretty established stage actor uh on a shoestring budget and what you end up with is this amazing example of of pacing and storytelling and acting and characterization uh it's just really a special movie that has a magic to it that that doesn't exist in all movies and it's a it's a five-star movie for me uh i i'm gonna have to go five stars as well on this i i think it would be remiss to dock even a half a star from this film It, it really is just a tour de force film and you, you know even if it, it this had come in the middle of Romero's career it would have been uh absolutely mind-blowing but to think that this was his debut film 
it's just mind boggling. Yeah. And uh, even kind of coupled with the fact that this had such a low budget, it it's really just one of these timeless classics. And I, I think it, even though it technically is a horror film, I think it does the film a disservice to, to really call it that because I, I think it's just purely a, an excellent film. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the prowess that it has comes from kind of the human drama within it. And a lot of the allegories, whether intentional or unintentional that kind of it holds. Yeah, it's definitely a character study and a very effective one. Yeah, I'm glad you picked it because this is the kind of film where as many times as I've seen it, every time I rewatch it, and I think you you expressed a similar sentiment earlier, but I, I just get a little bit something more out of it every time I watch it. And it just, it never gets old. I'm never bored watching it. I could, you know, I could turn it off and turn it right. You know, I could watch the the end credits uh, and then just kind of pop it right back on. Yeah, it's one I just always strongly recommend to everybody. I just feel like your, your film watching career is not complete if you've not seen Night of the Living Dead. I mean, at least once, but I would say you should probably watch it at least a billion times. Uh, I'm going to throw in uh, one of my little, my patented end of the show, throw something in. Uh, I just thought we couldn't let this go without saying that Keith Wayne, who played Tom, uh, was actually pretty much a non-actor. He was a musician that they hired for this. It was his only um, film role, I'm pretty sure. And he actually, after this, ended up becoming a orthodontist, I think, and settling down in Cary, North Carolina, right here in Wake County. Now that is a fun fact. Yep, yep. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't do this podcast in. Uh, well, I'm in Wake County. I, I guess you're not technically in Wake County, but we couldn't do it over here in the Triangle and not mention that he uh, lived out the remainder of his days in the Triangle. You know, we we are prone to dropping some North Carolina trivia. Amen, brother. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that is our show for the evening. Thank you for tuning in to another spooktacular episode of the Celluloid Fiends podcast. If you haven't already done so, you can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends pod on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, your favorite spot, uh, podcast app. And also head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review because that helps us out quite a lot. And that's a good way to give us a treat and not a trick. And oh, you can it. follow because <laughs> of Halloween. Exactly. Of Halloween. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I had to, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can follow me at Mitchell C long on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can read my writing on film at cup And I write about tech at techuplife.com and uh this is west clifton signing off here you can find me on social media i'm at cliff weston and uh, if you'd like to check out some of my writing you can always hit up my website wdclifton.wordpress.com i know i mentioned it on the last episode but just once again i do have a poem out somewhat recently in, it's called king's pyre and it's in uh issue 43 of weird book magazine which you can buy in both print and ebook on amazon.com and I hear it is pretty fantastic. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and remember, be kind, rewind.
Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.